The Democrats have finished up, which means the bottom of the inning belongs to the Trump train. And we are going to cover every second of it on our Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. It was so amazing seeing so many of you guys there over the last week. I am pulling double duty. I'm doing all the podcasts, all the live streams, and it's all for you. Twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. Join us in the smoky back room, breaking down all the speakers, all of the optics, all of the strategy. If you were just watching network news or on Twitter, you thought that AOC pulled a mutiny. Not if you were watching with us. Come on. It's where the smart kids are. Twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. If uh, you get the Twitch app, it's on Apple TV, it's on iOS, it's on Android, you can watch it there. Moreover, you can listen audio only if you want. You're just walking around the house, you just want to be a part of it, just head on over to twitch.tv, either on app or on browser, and follow Justin R. Young. See you there for every second of the Republican National Convention. The following is brought to you by Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Paul Boyer, Michael Bolick, and Will Harris. Welcome to the Politics, Politics, Politics Podcast. My name is Justin Robert Young. That was, oh, that was good convention. Mwah! I love a good convention. I like a good election. I like, I like lively campaigns. I like people that are doing things. Ooh! We got ourselves a race. Love it. Love it. We're going to talk about Biden. I'm going to give my final thoughts on the DNC. Uh, We're actually going to have a great interview a little bit later about some of the optics and the fashion of the DNC because without a big crowd, without a gigantic set, without all the trappings of what we normally see, there was a bit of a chance for a reinvention here. Some different decisions to be made. And our fashion correspondent, Joellen Posner, is going to do exactly that. We will also have a mailbag that will talk about not only the... Uh, uh, we, we have some old emails. We have some emails about uh, uh, Kamala getting picked. Uh, I asked for never-Trumpers to email in uh, about what they thought about Kamala. Uh, and uh, we have some feedback on the back-to-school special, which I'm very, very happy to read. A big, packed episode. But first! To be a light to the world once again, and finally to live up to and make real the words written in the sacred documents that founded this nation, that all men and women are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among them life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. You know, my dad was an honorable, decent man. He got knocked down a few times pretty hard, but he always got back up. He worked hard and he built a great middle class life for our family. He used to say, Joey, I don't expect the government to solve my problems, but I sure in hell expect them to understand them. And then he'd say, Joey, A job is about a lot more than a paycheck. It's about your dignity. It's about respect. It's about your place in the community. It's about being able to look your kid in the eye and say, honey, it's going to be okay. 
and meaning. Joe Biden did it. Well, more specifically, he didn't do what would have been a disaster. Joe Biden gave a good speech. In my mind, Joe Biden has given two great speeches in this election. One after he won his first primary in South Carolina and the other tonight. Now, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say greatest speech of all time, but he benefited from low expectations. Look, uh, uh, Joe is somebody that has been hidden by his own campaign. And as loath as I am to give Haida Biden any credit, it certainly did depress expectations to the point where him giving a good speech, and this is a good speech, really stuck out. His energy, specifically compared to Obama and Kamala the night before, who also gave good speeches but did not have a PX3 $3 club Listeners will know the, the the episode I did last uh, yesterday was about how you need to channel that energy in an empty room. He channeled that energy in an empty room. He felt like a live wire. He was connecting to the audience. Now, the substance of the speech is something that is obviously going to be up to the, the crowds that they're trying to reach, Right. It seemed like Democrats really dug it. Uh, uh, Some progressives were not particularly impressed, but whatever. The, The what he said will be dissected by the Republicans next week. What he said will be revered by Democrats and the press today and possibly forever. But what it mostly did was show that this is not weekend at Bernie's. Joe Biden is not a lifeless corpse that's being propped up by the party. He still has his fastball. The question is exactly how often he can summon it. He had to summon it here. He did. The other thing I really liked about night four was that they set up a narrative. Imagine that. A presidential campaign setting up a narrative and then paying it off. The narrative was the bullied versus the bully. The victims versus the aggressors. Joe Biden is bullied. Joe Biden has a stutter. Joe Biden is being pushed around by the other kids. But you want to know what Joe Biden is? He's a fighter. He's a fighter and he's going to come back and he's going to fight the biggest bully the Democratic Party has ever seen. Donald Trump. Demagogue. Divisive. Bully. That was effective. See, it's a story. You know, I I get get this reputation as being anti-Biden. I'm not anti-Biden. I'm giving them credit When they do a thing, just do things. That was a good thing. Do more things. Overall, the Dems finish strong. And that's probably all that's going to matter. Only nerds with no life watch all of the conventions, which you can do for the Republicans, at twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young next week, because I am indeed one of those nerds. But by and large, people are just going to see that Biden speech. They might see the Kamala speech. Maybe they see the Obama speech. But in general, that's the moment. And I thought while night four was pretty speech heavy, weren't as many montages in night three, the Democrats really, really, really got better each night. They, they fixed their mistakes. Everything got more polished, more impressive the longer they went on. Julia Louis-Dreyfus was great as a host. And some of those drumpf one-liners, which have been beaten to death 
on late night television were way funnier than they had any right to be considering they were coming out of her mouth because she's very, very funny. And I love Veep. Oh, do I love Veep. I miss Veep. We need Veep now more than ever. In the end, the Democrats did their best. I like those final moments. I like the fact that Kamala and Joe touched, which it was very awkward. They didn't touch on night three. They touched on night four. Which I, that's another thing, man. Uh, no, I'm not going to do this. I, I, I was going to complain. We're we're in we're deep into bat country now when it comes to the 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 blind devotion to the cause. Whenever I criticize. A, a, a strategic thing and it'll happen tomorrow or next week with the with, with with the Republicans I'll criticize something and it'll be like well you're not paying attention to blah and it happened this week with the Democrats where I'm like it's awkward they didn't touch why didn't they touch they're in a bubble if a billion dollar campaign can't be assured that the vice president and the president aren't going to give each other COVID then really are we seriously talking about them getting elected leaders of the free world. Come on. You can figure that one out. Enough so that they can touch. And so I said that on night three. And I got all the the, the Biden stands, just like the, the Biden stand alert went off. And the Biden stands came out. It's about optics. Why would they do that? You're being unreasonable. And then they touched on night four. I haven't heard a lot. Okay, I wound up bitching about it. Anyway, I thought it was good. It was as good as it could be. A few meta things that I might have other thoughts on, but again, I'm not the one that has to navigate the egos and the ages of everybody that you had to have to get signed off on. Really, the only major issue I had was I thought Bernie should have closed instead of Michelle. And I still have some questions about exactly the ordering of night one, but that's the ordering of night one. Nobody remembers night one right now, and we're only on night four. Biden did well, and that might be all that matters. Now, going forward, there is one thing that I wanted to bring up because let me take you back when, when uh, uh, you know, sometime uh, 15 to 17 years ago in 2019, when once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out, the Quentin Tarantino movie, there was some griping about how long it was. To which I would say, if I were running or I were brought in to the council to shorten Quentin Tarantino movies, I would say to, to the, the council, well, there's only one man who's ever been able to shorten Quentin Tarantino movies. And they'd slam their fist on the desk and they'd say, well, get me him. And I would say, it's not that simple. Why? Well, you're not going to like it. And then big tracking shot, tracking shot over uh, the Hudson River into a uh, prison uh, into another inner sanctum, down a spiral staircase. Rats are chasing each other. Drops of water are falling into another sub-basement, into another sub-basement. A big, uh, gigantic bank vault gets opened as we track into a singular holding cell and see for the first time Harvey Weinstein. Because sometimes... The people that can do a certain thing are not good or nice. I didn't think it was a smart idea to have Bill Clinton speak at the DNC, but you ignore his political acumen at your peril. When he didn't like the expert advice he was given, he ignored it. Only when COVID exploded in even more states did he encourage people to wear masks. By then, many more were dying. When asked about the surge in deaths, he shrugged and said, it is what it is. 
I wanted to highlight that line because I think it's a very credible way to attack Donald Trump on COVID in a way that the Trump campaign would find hard to refute. Let's unpack it. We're not making an argument about what he should have done when it came to America, either by China or by Europe, because, of course, you're going to have the argument of, well, Trump could have been worse if he didn't stop travel from China, could have been worse if he didn't stop travel from Europe. Nor is it about the PPE or the testing, both of which you can have counter arguments for. This is about Trump's behavior in one moment. And if I were the Democrats, I'd make this day famous. July 2nd. July 2nd was the day that Donald Trump tweeted himself in a mask. It came at the end of a week where he canceled his uh, Republican National Convention. A few days earlier, he canceled a New Hampshire rally. Why did he do all those things? Because he came to realize that he was wrong. He was wrong to push for live events. He was wrong to argue with the Democratic mayor of Charlotte, North Carolina. He was wrong to try to reschedule the RNC. Everything changed on July 2nd. That makes him inconsistent. It also means Democrats can accurately ask, what changed? What, Mr. President, changed your tune? Because what we suspect is what we have been saying for months. That masks work and live events are dangerous. So if it took you until July 2nd to make that decision, what changed? I'll tell you what. There's a book called Shattered. It's all about Hillary Clinton's 2016. And in that book, Bill Clinton just roams around the background, sidelined from his wife's campaign, and just kind of muses. He's like this Greek chorus. And he's like, you know, this Brexit thing, I think about this Brexit thing, you know, this populist wave, I take a little bit more of a hard look at this populist wave. And sure enough, all the boffins and their spreadsheets are proven too clever by half. And old Bubba, his southern political gut, had seen an upset coming. Bill Clinton's a smart guy when it comes to politics. He is a horrifyingly gross individual. But... When it comes to July 2nd, I believe he's on to something. Politics. They asked me, did I go deep in my bag? And I tell them, I showed it. Ladies and gentlemen, let's go ahead and open our mailbag. Uh, you can go ahead and be a part of it. Uh, TheYoungAmerican at gmail.com. Com. Bunch of different topics here. Michael wrote about the DNC speech last night for Biden. Excellent, powerful speech. Touched on almost all the issues except for police reform and protests. At least he did not play the law and order card. Save the best for last. Like how he never said Dumbo's name. Excellent. Uh, he also did not say anything related to being pro-choice. Being Catholic is a thorny road for him. Heavy family message. Very choreographed to allow Biden to shine the brightest. Both Obama and Harris could have given more powerful speeches, I thought, but Biden is the headliner. I don't believe that Biden and, or sorry, that, that, that uh, Kamala and Obama tanked for Biden. I think Biden went last. And when you have the benefit of watching how everybody else comes uh, through, then you have an opportunity to do better. In a lot of ways, that might be a, a negative for the Democrats as the Republicans are able to watch how that comes through for them. Eric. 
writes, I wanted to reach out, but not only as a person who is buying their home. Uh, oh, this is about uh, the eviction crisis. Who is buying their home, but a person who rents out to others. A moratorium on evictions would probably cost me my house. The last person we evicted ended up having to, we ended up having to dump $20,000 into the home just to repair it. After they stopped paying and we waited the mandatory six months to evict, they saw no reason not to trash the place. Standard, we ended up dumping 5000 into a place every time a renter leaves, fixing all the issues. Also, even if there was a moratorium, what happens after it expires? Uh, You know, it is, it is a point of view that needs to be considered. I'm always glad to have counterpoints of view uh, uh, on this show. And while on uh, uh, Twitter, the, the plight of the landlord is not something that gets a lot of time and effort, uh, I do think it is something that needs to be considered when you're making laws, like things that can't be disobeyed. I think that is important. Sean D. writes, if Biden wins, all the Trump haters will be even more insufferable than they are already. Impossible to imagine, but Trump already won one election. Because if they righted this injustice, just imagine what we can do next. And the Democratic Party will be able to hold their heads high and say that the ends did, did justify the means. All the BS they pulled in 2016 was done all over again in 2020. Only this time they learned not to get caught with their hand in the cookie jar. And all the progressives that bit their tongue and voted for Biden won't be happy because none of their ideas will be addressed. And the Trump supporters will just be given, uh, uh, sorry, proven right in their minds about the left, making Trump a martyr. But if Trump wins, he'll continue to be a failed disappointment, meaning he'll continue to act outside of his authority and be put back in his place by the other branches of government, theoretically, if Congress could ever get their heads out of their butts. And maybe, just maybe, the Democratic Party will learn their lesson about compromising their values and morals in the name of a win. Maybe some humanity could be had by the left and the progressives could have a bigger voice. I mean, it's either that or the progressive break off and become a separate political party. I guess what I mean is that America has survived four years of Trump. It could take another four. Lick your wounds and be better for next time. And if I hear another self-entitled never-Trumper say that COVID wouldn't have happened if Clinton had won in 2016, BS! You don't get to sidestep every other political issue that has happened beforehand because maybe we don't get COVID because the U.S. is too busy invading another country in the Middle East in the name of democracy or nuclear war with North Korea. You can cherry pick your what if scenarios. So, yeah, I think Trump needs to win the 2020 election so that people will realize that the division is not the way to heal this country. 2016's disenfranchisement was, quote, if it was anybody other than Trump running on the platform. 2020's disenfranchisement has become if it was anybody other than Biden running on that platform. Politics really is a pendulum. I wanted to read Sean D's letter solely because I have never heard the argument articulated. Trump is the worst. He's terrible. We need to reelect him. <laughs> I just never heard that. And I wanted to bring it to you because I found it to be... Remarkable. Matt writes, you asked for never Trump conservatives to email you about Kamala. So here I am. Yeah, I don't like her. Uh, I perceive her as a politician's politicians who will cozy up to whatever faction or party thinks she uh, could get her more power for a 2024 presidential run. That probably means running way left. As much as I don't like Trump, that particular critique of her from this camp strikes me as more or less true. That's dead. I'd still vote for Joe if I was in a swing state. Plenty of time to vote against Kamala in 2024. Give the GOP a chance to pick some small shreds of dignity and regain my vote. Jeremy in Colorado writes, I'm responding to your request to hear never Trump reps. I'm a conservative that didn't vote for Trump in 2016 and changed my affiliation after that election. I'll vote for Joe Biden, casting my first vote for an identified Democrat in any election. Thank you for writing in, Jeremy. But that doesn't exactly... Make you a never-Trump Republican. Now it does it. Tim, I noticed this last episode, only the only woman you had on was one out of five white people to talk about the Kamala Harris VP announcement. I'm sure there are more than just white guys and your family members qualified to talk about this and other issues. Yeah, I'd love to see more diversity on the show. All right. Uh, let me break this down. So... There was a moment amongst all the hustle and bustle of putting that episode together specifically in which I looked at our roster and I said, a lot of dinglings here. 
no people of color. And knowing that Kamala Harris is a woman of color and is going to uh, you know, be covered as a historic VP pick, I really could have. I really uh, 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 could have gotten some more diversity. Now, that episode, from my perspective, and, and let's understand here, and I say this by way of explanation, not excuse, but me and Tamar are the only people that work on this show. I appreciate that folks think that we have a much larger reach than we have, and we have more resources than we do. It means that the show feels bigger, and I like that. I, I'm trying to, to give that impression. So I got to eat these L's. But booking that episode was, whew. I mean, when, when the announcement comes in afternoon East Coast, here on the West Coast, uh, uh, I had to do everything I could, and I, I, I made more of a priority to get different sides of the ideological spectrum than I did the race and gender spectrum. So I, I expected this criticism, and so I wanted to air it. Uh, we have made a concerted effort to have more uh, men and women of color on the show, and we want to continue to have the kind of ideological diversity that we have. So there we go. That is the mission statement from Inside the Belly of the Beast. Now for some back-to-school feedback. Eric writes, nice episode on the school situation. I would say that the non-expert interviews were the best part. I would like to point out a few things, though. The experts talked about schools having not enough money. This seems odd, as schools are funded by property taxes. And many schools are preventing parents from leaving the district to charter schools. Property taxes will be large, largely unimpacted by the closure of state economies by the state. There are a lot of ways that schools could save money over this shutdown. Office space, building HVAC, janitorial, and any schools that fail to adapt should have its administration looked at. Why are experts suggesting sweeping national legislation when schools are funded and run locally? Internet access is a problem that you could do an entire episode on as there are true believers that it needs more regulation to give everybody access and others believe that regulation is what's causing the access shortage. Thank you, Eric. David writes, I really enjoyed the back-to-school episode. It was nice to hear how other parents were handling the situation and getting different perspectives on education in the time of COVID. We have three kids who are uh, having to make decisions about their education. I was amused listening to Jessica Calarco say the parents' energy would be better spent calling politicians uh, than to set up a pandemic pod or try to hire a private teacher. As a parent, I feel responsible for my kids and their sa safety, and I tend to put my energy in the area that I have the most control over and will see the most impact. Unfortunately, calling a politician and hoping they do what I want is not a strategy I want to entrust my children's well-being to. The 2020 yearbooks are going to be something that will be shown for a long time, assuming we don't all die. And Nick writes, Hi, Justin and Tamar. First off, the show is really getting more awesome every day. I love it, and I can't wait to see how it goes heading into the election. I wanted to write in about the back-to-school special episode. I wish I had sent this earlier, but the lake fire had other plans, and I was evacuated for a few days. Anyway, I'm a school photographer. My family business has been uh, school photographers for 102 years. We're small by business standards, but we service around 200 schools and 100,000 students. What we have seen from working with the districts lately has been crazy. No one wants to make the wrong move, and everyone is paralyzed by it. We're in California, where most counties are required to do distance only so folks can pass the buck up to the state level for any complaints about schools not having in-person instruction. A couple of highlights that I've seen. Number one, districts are in a perpetual cash crunch trying to reopen. No one has money for COVID modifications. Two, teachers unions and districts are in a constant battle about how reopening is going to happen. Three, parents don't understand how hard it is to get a reopening waiver. Reopening waivers will really only be accessible by private and charter schools, non-union, as labor unions have to sign off on reopening. Per the California governor, quote, prior to applying for the waiver, the applicant or his or her staff 
must consult with labor, parent, and community organizations, and two, publish elementary school reopening plans on the website of the local educational agency or equivalent. Four, because schools didn't know what was going on, they failed to plan for anything. We have one district that we are printing paper workbooks for because they were, quote, the last on the phone with HP. And they won't have their distance learning computers until October. And lastly, the school photo tradition and industry may very well be dead. We've now had one class without graduation and another start without back-to-school photos. But don't worry, most school photographers are diversified and also photographing youth sports. And then he adds a parenthetical... That is our mailbag for this week. If you want to be a part of it next week, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Oh, we survived. We survived. One half of the conventions, live streams every night, $3 Club getting their bonus podcast, the free political newsletter continues to be free and daily, but week daily, for everybody that subscribes. The PX3 brand has never been stronger, and it is because we have worked for four years hand in hand with you. You listening right now. Yeah. If, if you're a part of TakePoliticsSeriously.com, the way we power the show monetarily, then thank you. If you're part of the $1 Big Tent tier, you get the bonus RSS feed, which means you get the episodes early. If you're a part of the $3 Club, you get two bonus episodes a week. $10 to get your name right at the end of the show in the donor class. Oh, oh, but more than that, if you are on twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young watching the Democratic Convention, watching the Republican Convention, and after that, we got some fun stuff in the offing. It is free to follow. All you got to do is create a Twitch account. It is on iOS, Android, Apple TV, and your browser. Just search for Justin R. Young, hit follow, that's it. It'll alert you whenever I go live. And speaking of free, you can always sign up for a free political newsletter five days a week, the best email feedback section ever. I am always delighted by it. Check it out, freepoliticalnewsletter.com. And as always, thank you all for bringing this community to life. Oh, we're not done with the DNC just yet. We have to break down every little visual element of this spectacle. Quite possibly a once in a lifetime moment of reimagining of an archaic and stodgy political tradition. And so when we think about the flair and we think about the messaging of what goes into that, There was only one person we had to call, and that is Joellen Posner. She is our fashion correspondent for PX3. Welcome to the show, Joellen. Thanks so much for having me back. It's fun to be here. All right. Obviously, this was a convention unlike any other, uh, and yet it tried to ape some of the trappings of a traditional physical convention, some of it was obviously uh, very much of the 2020 post-Zoom revolution world. Uh, uh, But let's start fashion-wise. What stuck out to you? I actually think that the biggest fashion statement at this convention was an anti-fashion statement. Okay. So, you know, normally you see people in very carefully curated clothes that... uh, have some sort of message and put them in their best light that make them look amazing, right? Or at least that's the goal. 
And here I found that the message was looking amazing is not our priority. Um, and in fact, possibly not what we're after at all. So there was some political messaging, right? You had people like Nancy Pelosi and Hillary Clinton and Gabby Giffords and even Julia Louis-Dreyfus wearing white. Oh, and, and um, uh, oh, stink. What's her name? The one who posted <laughs> the first night. Uh, oh, uh, 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 the Desperate Housewife, whose name yes. I can't remember. Uh, uh, she was married to a basketball Gabrielle player. Police. What's her name? Oh, oh. Oh, Eva Longoria. Eva Longoria. Eva Longoria. Got it. Eva Lo Edit that part out. <laughs> Eva Longoria also looked gorgeous in white. And particularly on Wednesday night, that white was a, a callback to the suffragette movement. Sure. Um, and Century so anniversary earlier in the week. Yeah. Yeah. So very meaningful there. But also something that's kind of played out. You know, Hillary wore white at her convention four years ago. Uh, in 2018, uh, most of the new women in Congress were white, or 2019, Union. I guess it was, were white yeah. to the State of the Union address. So um, this is not a new statement. And I think that meant its impact was a little bit diminished. Uh, but it was still a nice, a nice touch. Having said that, none of those outfits were terrific. Nancy Pelosi, who is usually really on point, her, you know, white brocade dress was it looked kind of old ladylike. The brocade was a little bit awkward. The fit was a little bit awkward. So I think that the message was more about uh, what we're here to do than how we look. And that's particularly true in the case of Jill Biden. So Jill is adorable. Uh, I loved seeing those old pictures of her um, and Joe and their and the two young boys when she was young and beautiful and, and fresh looking. And, um, and she's still an amazing looking person for 69 years old. Um, and she's, you know, got a great figure and everything. Uh, and she could probably wear lots of things and look really pulled together. In fact, that's my general impression of her from uh, the, the Obama administration. But the dress she wore on Tuesday night, that green dress to give her speech, was ugly. <laughs> sure. Um, and I really felt like that was the point because she's got good taste. She doesn't generally look not right, you know, but that dress was not a great color on her. Um, it wasn't a great fit. It wasn't particularly interesting, um, nor slick, nor sleek, nor it didn't make her look pulled together. And I think that was exactly the point. She looked like a high school teacher or a yes. community college teacher. Yes. And that's, um, and that's, you know, when, when you think about the stagecraft of a, a, a convention, obviously, usually you're just coming up to the stage, a literal stage, and you are giving your speech. But here, for Joe Biden specifically, uh, she had a classroom behind her. And so, that's right. so the idea that she looked like a high school teacher fit because she had a high school class in back of her. That's exactly right. And I think that's really the theme of the optics throughout the entire convention, that we are not just politicians getting together for a big party, but we're real people confronting real situations just like everybody else out there. And we're going to make sure you see us like you see the people in your daily lives. And I think that was Jill Biden's green dress. You know, what what else would be the point of that? I'm not trying to shame her for not wearing something high fashion and gorgeous. And as far as I know, nobody has claimed credit for that dress, which normally designers would. Yeah. Um, it was just a dress and it was possibly a dress that she's had for a long time. And it wasn't the dress that fit her the best or made her look the prettiest. Um, and I really think that was the point. You know, um, and that's and that's a thing. I spent a lot of time on on the live stream talking about narrative, right? That narrative is something that I feel very, very much uh, in political campaigns is important. You've got to have the big story. At least successful and legendary political campaigns have had big, almost elemental narratives, things that you feel in your bones without it even being explicitly said by the candidate or the talking points. You just know it. Or, or there's one or two words that are said that you fill in the rest of the paragraph in your head. And that is something that binds us all together. Visually, I thought that the Democrats had, and the Republicans next week, will have a tremendous opportunity to visually tell a narrative. And I think that, I don't know if it was done any better than with Jill Biden. The, the idea that she is a, a school teacher. She wants to continue to teach school. And of course, 
working lunch pail, brown bag, Amtrak Joe would have a school teacher wife. That is that is a a, a, a powerful idea that just sort of clicks in your head. That's right. I think the issue is um, I would frame it slightly differently and say it's about authenticity. Sure. There, it, and what I mean by that is, does everything that they're presenting us match that narrative, right? The narrative on its own isn't sufficient. All of the pieces need to fit together in a, in a piece, right, of the same cloth um, for us to really buy it. And it's it's difficult to, you know, if she was wearing um, an Armani gown uh, or, or even... Uh, um, uh, you know, a bodycon dress like the yeah. Republican women tend to favor right now, she, that would not look authentic. She would be, that would be jarring. Considering well, the message yeah, especially standing in front of a high school classroom set, right? Like that would, uh, That's that, right. would that would look awkward if she was just dressed to the nines as if she were walking to the Met Gala uh, and, but really behind her it's homeroom. Exactly. And I think Elizabeth Warren had the same uh, effect in her, you know, preschool classroom setting um, where she looked like a professor who had walked into a class, a preschool classroom, but she didn't look in any way inconsistent with what was going on. Right. So if your grandma comes to pick you up after work from preschool, that's what she's going to look like. Um, and there, there was no pretense to uh, what they were doing other than this is a setting that I'm comfortable in. I look comfortable in it. Nothing I'm putting on here is jarring or inconsistent with what you're seeing. And that's a really powerful message, particularly because those classrooms are empty right now. Right. So that setting yeah. gave them a really beautiful platform or visual message to underline the failed policies of the Trump administration, what they're calling the failed policies of the Trump administration. Um, and the fact that those classrooms are going to be empty for a while. And that's hard for anybody who has children, who has, who cares about children. And so this is specific messaging. And I guess to the fashion idea, you know, if, if a, a mom who is dealing with a lot of these school issues that we talked about a lot last week are, are watching it and they're noticing, you know, the fashion choices that are being made and connecting that to the school issue. Now you are speaking implicitly to suburban moms. Well, I mean, I feel like we shouldn't be using that phrase, but yeah. Well, okay. Uh, 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 that is that is a, a demo for which I know the Democrats and the Republicans are, are battling over now. But but yes, let's not let's not yeah. narrow it down to only that. Well, I mean, I I, I guess I take issue with the the um, idea that they're suburban. Um, this is an urban issue as much as it's a suburban sure, issue. Sure, and, sure. And we and the Democrats want all moms, right? And and not just all moms, but all women. Um, and that was really made clear by their choice of hosts and the way that they engaged with uh, the various elements of the convention. That that was really clear. And I think that's necessary. If they don't win the the women's vote, then, you know, there's kind of no hope. Oh, uh, assuredly. Yeah. <laughs> assuredly. All right. So, yeah. So Jill, Jill, I thought was a really powerful anti-fashion statement. I think Michelle Obama's um, brown blouse, I think it was a blouse, I don't know if it was a dress, um, was also a kind of anti-fashion statement. Michelle Obama knows how to dress, right? She always looks beautiful. She loves color. She loves pattern. Um, and obviously the considerations for sitting in front of a video camera are different. Um, but that was a, a kind of stark, uh, you know, plain canvas on which to highlight um, her message and, uh, right. So she was wearing this kind of satiny bronzy, um, blouse. It, it, I couldn't see that it fit particularly well. I don't think the color she's worn a lot of Brown over the years and she generally looks radiant in it. And I don't think that particular shade was amazing for her. Um, but again, I think that was the point that she wasn't presenting the most polished version of herself she was presenting a real version of herself and the star of the show was her little vote necklace, which, you know, has been um, taken off and become a, a huge bestseller and is a really powerful message. She did a little bit of, uh, of fashion politics in that uh, the, the blouse she wore was designed by a new American designer who just showed at uh, Fashion Week for the first time. So she's doing her part in, in supporting uh, new voices in fashion, which she's always done really beautifully. Um, but it wasn't with a fashion statement. It was with a political statement. In general, what are the considerations 
when you are only thinking about showing off something or dressing well for what is you know kind of a a a, a, a you know a torso up shot at its most expansive in the way that we've seen with zoom calls and and that sort of framing that's a really good question. So we, we are normally uh, used to seeing these people standing up and giving speeches. And I think that was, in fact, one of the um, downsides of this convention, which I'd love to come back to. But um, the the thing about standing up is that your clothes hang like they do on a hanger or on a model, right? They, they sit kind of where they're supposed to sit. When you're sitting down, everything shifts around. I mean, you've seen it. Uh, I'm sure you you do it yourself if you're going to be on camera and you're wearing a jacket. I don't know if those things ever happen to you, Justin. Sure. Um, no, no, no. They, they've happened. Like, they've happened, yeah. You have to pull down the back of your jacket and kind of sit on it so there's not that little ridge behind your shoulders, right? Yeah. Um, and you have to adjust, you know, you unbutton the front so that it sits properly. And so that's really the biggest issue. You want to try to make a... a, a a statement that's kind of simple and straightforward because you don't want to have to adjust it too much. You also don't want to wear something with a, um, you know, a really interesting neckline that might distract, uh, you know, from your face and the message that you're saying, because your face is going to be so front and center. You got to keep it a little more simple in these, in these kinds of situations. And that's that, you know, I think everybody did a, a good job of that. Nobody wore anything distracting. All right. Was there anything else that, uh, stuck out to you? Um, oh, can we talk about Kamala? Oh, we can talk about Kamala. So I wrote a blog post last week about Kamala and the suit because Kamala is the goddess of, uh, you know, kind of classic business suits. Um, and her color palette ranges from black all the way to light gray <laughs> she yeah she is she is all business that that is yeah. that is that is her that is her mo that's her mo and she and it's clear not just i think with her it's not like i don't know how to do this thing that's her sweet spot it's what makes her feel powerful because she looks so at home and happy in her suits and she looks gorgeous she's got a beautiful shape um for suits right she's got kind of a, a classical classically, uh, you know, hourglass figure that fits, you know, what a suit designer is going for. Um, and she, she really looks right in, in those suits. She more often wears skirt suits than pantsuits. Um, and she does have a blue one, but, uh, you know, she usually stays in her very, um, dark gray tone, uh, color palette. So I was really excited to see what she would do to amp it up. And she brought us burgundy. Yeah. I actually thought it was really uh, as far outside her comfort zone as she could probably go and still feel comfortable. And she obviously had to feel comfortable for making that speech. And I think it looked beautiful on her and it was a great suit. It did not fit particularly well. Uh, several of my friends and I have noted that her sleeves always look about half an inch too long. <laughs> um, and I I tend to think in general that sends the message that I'm a really busy person and I don't have time to take everything to the tailor, um, which is probably just true, right? Like she probably, she's got a great figure. She probably wears something off the rack without having to tailor it too much. Um, I think that, uh, like this was not the best suit for her. It was also like a weird flared pants that didn't really, I don't know. I, I would have preferred to see her in a skirt just because I think that, that, uh, it looks better on her. My point is not that I'm trying to tear apart her fashion choice. No. My point is that she was consistent with this anti-fashion statement, right? It's all of a piece. Like I'm a prosecutor, I'm a DA, I'm a attorney general, I'm a senator. I don't have time to go out and buy a designer dress for you people. This is what I have. It's good, right? It's a good suit and I look good enough. And this is the role that, that I want you to see me in. And it's all, you know, cut from the same cloth. Um, so I thought that was taking a little bit of a risk for her just with a color choice. It worked. She looked beautiful. And um, it was consistent with the general theme of we got to get to business. We got to get to work. This is not, we're not playing around here. I also wonder because Kamala's speech was the first on the, the mock DNC set that they had built in Wilmington. That mm -hmm. This was a very interesting moment where I almost wonder whether or not there was 
you had at least the opportunity for more fashion coordination between outfit and set. Since so much of that set was digital and you're not seeing it night in and night out for four nights, you had the opportunity if you wanted to, to even adjust the background or, or uh, you know, select a fashion choice to do it. Uh, it seemed like the burgundy fit well on the set with with the the the, the dark and light blue back backgrounds with the American flag in the back. It seemed like the burgundy sort of felt like it was the the amalgam of the background. But uh, I, I almost wonder if there was more thought put into that. Oh, I think every aspect of this was very intentional. I, I think there was a lot of thought put into it. And I think you're right. It it worked well with that dark color um, background. And, and note, again, the use of space and place in that background. She looked like she was in an empty convention hall. Yeah. I mean, she was in an empty convention yes. hall. Yes. <laughs> she was literally was... In, 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 more accurately, a room designed to look like an empty convention hall. <laughs> right. So again, just like Jill Biden and uh, and Elizabeth Warren, she's reminding us of what should be happening right now that isn't. And I thought that was incredibly useful. So so keeping her own palette kind of monochrome uh, spare was effective in reinforcing that message. I think they really did uh, a beautiful job of using empty space to their advantage throughout the whole convention. Yeah, uh, uh, can we circle back just real quick to the choice of skirt versus pantsuit? Because yeah. I, I, I am, I, I, I do want to unpack that a little bit more on what message these, the skirt would send beyond. I think we've seen a lot of powerful women in general, but specifically the democratic party and, and the convention in pantsuits. Uh, I, I do wonder if, if that would have been its own message if she came out in a skirt. I really don't know. I, I've given a fair amount of thought to it and I'm not, I mean, I just more often see her in skirts than pants. And so it seemed like that was her, you know, her home base. Yeah. Um, and I, I wonder if she was, you know, masculinizing a little bit for, to, to make her look more like a politician rather than a woman, you know, um, I, I really don't know. Uh, and and the 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 pants are are also just the cut of that pant is just a little bit out of fashion, right? Like we more uh, regularly now see like a cigarette pant, you know, ta a tapered, yeah. um, slim cut trouser, and not those flares, which I personally love, but I, I don't think they're particularly of the moment. So I don't know. Maybe that was maybe they just went for the color and that was the, the best color and, and the rest was, you know, going to be behind the lectern anyway. It's it's uh, that part is a little unscrutable. And I think we could really, you know, uh, go down a rabbit hole if we <laughs> wanted to. But let's just say that she was effective in using color. Yes. Uh, and she and she she gave a message that I think, again, was consistent with uh, the the narrative that she's that she's putting out there. All right. Uh, uh, well, uh, I'll tell you what. I feel like we 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 had we had all all the all the major themes. Do you have anything else in your list? Oh yeah. Oh, let's um, go then. Again, just the use of space. The uh, the Obamas in front of the, you know, Barack Obama standing in front of the the constitution constitutional lesson was amazingly impactful. Right. Um, the the musical numbers. Uh, set not there, so you're not pretending that you're giving a concert to uh, however many thousands of conventioneers. Um, I thought was effective, um, and I thought. Well, can I uh, can I ask you something though about about the the concert stuff because you you mentioned and I think very effectively the idea of authenticity. Uh, does that clash with the idea of here's an original Billie Eilish song and here's John Legend in common and here is this element of uh, a specialized celebrity? I think that the celebrities they chose fit the demographic really well that they're going for. And that's, and that's that they need to turn out for this election. Um, and, you know, the, the role of celebrities in politics is not to, to, well, it's to raise money, first of all. Yes. Um, but it's not to say, uh, uh, you know, th these are your role models. It's to say, these are people that you admire 
they support us, right? So we're kind of playing with uncertainty. Uh, if you are undecided or you're kind of not sure if you really uh, believe something, you look at this just general social psychology. You look around and say, well, what is everybody else doing? Yeah. And the people that are of high status and that we trust a lot are the people whose eyes we go to first. So that's what they're doing. And um, I thought, you know, the, the, the videos were relatively sedate. They were relatively spare. It wasn't flashy, right? They were, they were, I think they were hitting the message home. Now it's awkward, right? Like this whole thing is awkward, especially sure. because the transitions were rough, right? On every cut. Um, so it, it's, that's not to say that it was seamless, but it's also, that also again, reinforces the idea that this isn't what we had planned. We yeah. did a really good job in very unusual circumstances and it's going to be a little rough. It did look a little bit like a telethon at some points, um, particularly with the celebrity hosts. Yeah. But, I mean, I think number one, conventions are awkward. And as, yeah. uh, as, as somebody who is now on his second year of having to watch, every second of convention coverage, not from the, like if you are only watching it on CNN or MSNBC or Fox news or whatever, you don't realize how much they're cutting away and they're cutting away for a reason. They're going to a panel for a reason. They're discussing stuff for a reason. I have for the last two years now watched every unbroken moment from either that stage or what was put out here today and let me just tell you while this was indeed awkward in many parts uh boy howdy some of the stuff that they are cutting away from on on television is uh cut away from for a reason it is awkward for a hundred percent and i i have a lot of images from the 2016 republican convention of like the trump family on the podium and you know kind of looking out into the crowd and those awkward huddles um and uh you know Donald Trump uh, kind of very awkwardly embracing and touching inappropriate parts of Ivanka. Uh, right. So there's, <laughs> well, but even, a- even, even, you know, th- there are staged like round tables that they have, like kind of what happened with the, uh, the, the primary candidates in night four where mm-hmm. it was like, man, boy, would there be no place that I would rather actually be than an unscripted conversation with those particular personalities. I would love for them to tell stories about this primary cycle. But what they were doing were reading Talking Point. I mean, this was a staged conversation. Those happen all the time at conventions, and they are never the most pleasing things to, to watch. They just happen to be in Zoom boxes this year. That's right. And I think, you know, that's so what was missing was all of the hype and the noise and the crowd. um, 19,000 people screaming. Yes. That makes all of that palatable. You know, in sociology, uh, we we uh, talk about that a lot. That's that's what um, uh, Emile Durkheim called collective effervescence. Right. We get together. There's this emotional content to our togetherness. We feel like we're of like minds. We're emotionally bonded. Um, we're excited, right? That that being together provides uh, the the material to fill in th- those blank spaces. And so so those blank spaces were more obvious here. And I think they were really exploited to the best advantage. I'll also say that nowhere was that put to better use than in the roll call, which had me in tears. I was petrified that it was going to be this ho hum, awkward, uh, you know, bizarre little thing but it was the most beautiful expression of diversity and uh, a real american life in every uh manifestation that's out there um that i could have imagined it was really really moving and you know this that's something that this convention was capable of doing that no other could have done yeah you I probably did not appreciate it as much, mostly because I I found myself giving an impromptu history lesson on why AOC had not gone rogue in nominating Bernie Sanders for uh, the convention. So I probably did not uh, uh, appreciate some of the splendor uh, uh, as as I could have. Uh, but it certainly at least got a meme out of it with the with with the calamari king of Rhode Island. But what wasn't that beautiful? I mean, like, let's face it. No offense to Rhode Island, but it's a little bit tacky, um, right? Like- <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's fine. Uh, uh, I I am a, uh, a a misty-eyed traditionalist, so I do love I love the roll call when they do it 
in the room. I I thought this was a fine substitute. If 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 anything, the only the thoughts I would have had were more large meta level how to think of something like this. Uh and and maybe the idea of creating their own little mini DNC bubble or something like that. So you would have every once in a while, you just establish that space a little bit. So on night two, when you're doing the roll call every once in a while, you are going to that, that empty room that Kamala eventually spoke on. So you can just introduce it visually. And, and we start out in the crowd. And then by night three, we see Kamala on stage. And then by night four, Biden is not only on stage, but he walks out and there's a gigantic crowd and fireworks and everything. And they did that with night, night, night three and four. But that was the only thought I really had with the roll call. Otherwise, it was as good as I think you could hope to do it in that setting. I, I'm going to disagree only slightly because, I again, I think that that what they put together really highlighted the absence of of what was missing. Right. So. We know what a roll call looks like, and it's not very personal, right? Like they're the silly hats. You can barely hear them. Uh, you can't you really can't make out the message of what they're saying. You just you just really hear the great state of right, whatever. Um, and this was much more personal. It was much more uh, r- real life. And and it again brought home the message that the, that the people that support this party and that are going to benefit from their election are you and me and yeah. whatever it is that we're doing. I, and I, I, and I, yeah, I mean, that, that there's no, you know, typical, like the big contrast is going to come next week when we see so much less diversity um, in the Republican convention. And I'm, I'm, I'm prognosticating here, but like, you know, that I'm right. Um, the, when, when we see the roll call, whatever it looks like, it's going to be a whole bunch of old white men in suits. Right. So uh, that, that contrast is going to be even more stark. Oh, certainly. When it comes to diversity, I mean, yeah, there's there's uh, likely going to be no doubt that that will be the case. Uh, uh, to defend my weird meta idea, and I know it's a bad idea because it makes no sense because I have no control over it. But I, I would say you do eighty percent of it the way it was done. You just come back to this empty convention center every once in a while when you have somebody that's there for this convention where nobody else showed up, and I think that would highlight that. The idea that this is not normal uh, in an almost more stark way. But, oh, I see. Yeah. Uh, uh, but and, yeah. and also just introducing that space. I think as they wound up ending it, the space became very important. It became super important when Biden gives a, 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 a very good speech and then walks out the idea that like, oh, the space is so important that the townsfolk gathered in their cars and they're so excited that uh, fireworks are going off that, that, that space by the end of it became very important. It was just another way to think of how to introduce it earlier, but now I'm just defending an idea I had for the second time and we can move on. No, I think that's reasonable. I think that the um, Wisconsin Lieutenant governor um, who kind of was the last, but Delaware uh, in the roll call, did it in front of an empty convention center where they would have been, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and and that that note was really was particularly effective for the reasons that you described. Um, I also liked the mix of live and and taped pieces there um, because the taped pieces they weren't perfect, right? You didn't get the sense that they they did a thousand takes until they got it right. Um, although they were, you know, they were they were perfectly good, uh, but they were they were a little rough around the edges as befits a roll call. The live pieces um, made that even more salient and I think re- reminded us of the unpredictability of um, of this live political theater that, that we love. All right. Well, uh, uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for taking time out of your day to talk fashion, optics, and so much more. Joellen Posner, you are always a treat. Hopefully we will have you back on sometime soon. I look forward to it. Thank you so much for having me. And that wraps up our DNC Week of Politics coverage. (sighs) I miss it already. I miss it already. Four years. Four years until we get to do it again. I mean, I... I feel like this year has beaten out of me the idea of chestily saying, well, it'll be back to normal next time. But 
Oh boy, do I hope it'll be back to normal next time. I hope to be there. I hope it's in person. I hope that uh, uh, we can continue to bring this kind of coverage uh, to you guys. Uh, but we reset. We recharge. Tamar uh, texted me last night and said, hey, can I send over a, a congratulations? And I was like, no. This band of misfits. Us. Us all together. We have a much longer road to walk. Another convention, debates, election night. Oh, we have just begun to cover. And we do so with our vanguard. The Titanic, $10 tier, Modesto's own Logan, Cisco, NH Blumpkin, Chad, Headphones, Neil, Water Ride, Scoop, MacBook Pro, Dallas Danger Taylor, Middle Age, Mike DTNS, Hack 5, Brad, Utah, Jimmy, Montana, Frozen Summer, Zach and Cheese, Captain Bunzo, Zombie Doc, Berkeley, Steven, your boy, Craig, TroubleFilm.com, Robert, Mr. Tallyman, D Laser I Poop My Pants, Just Another Pilot, Alex, Mitchell, Severio, Martin, Alec, Government Unfiltered, Jerry, Andres, Archie, Jay Millius, The Gen, The Crap in My Pants, Olin and Angela, DL, Brian, IBootMyPants.com, Miranda Janelle, Robert Ward, Glenn Wolfbrand, Chili Scoop, Richard, Jim, J-Pink, and Andrew Maine. You want to join their ranks? TakePoliticsSeriously.com. One dollar gets you the uh, custom RSS feed. Enter that into any a podcatcher that you use, Apple, Google Play, uh, Spotify, anything. You can enter it into there and you just get the episodes faster. That's a buck, buck uh, a week, right? So four bucks a month, easy. $3 club gets you two bonus episodes. Thank you, thank you, thank you to everybody. Uh, A reminder, go to twitch.tv. And uh, or download the app. Get it on your Apple TV. Search Justin R. Young. Follow me there. You're going to get alerts when I go live. And you are going to be able to catch our Republican National Convention coverage and all the fun stuff that we do on that channel. Also, subscribe to the free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Follow me on social media at Justin R. Young, Twitter and Instagram. If you just want a sampling of what we're doing on the Twitch channel, just head on over. Twitter.com slash Justin R. Young. Till next time, this is your old pal Jerbs saying, some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more talk about politics, but this, this is the only show that talks about Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> <laughs>